From San Francisco, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Our program is supported by listeners. If you can help, I'm much obliged. Just log on to PeterBCollins.com and click on the tab that says You Can Help. Here comes another in our continuing series of interviews for the Boiling Frog series, co-hosted with Sabelle Edmonds. And today our guest is Dr. Nafiz Ahmed, a British-born journalist and political scientist. He's published a number of interesting books, which you'll hear about in a moment. But what he brings us is the perspective on U.S. foreign policy from Britain. And that has been very valuable, particularly during the Bush years, when the corporate media in the United States didn't bother or dare to offer critical analysis of the policies that were in play. And to be fair, that uh, lapdog mentality in the American media continues under the Obama administration. Welcome to The Boiling Frogs with Sibelle Edmonds. I'm Peter B. Collins. Joining us today is Dr. Nafiz Mossadegh Ahmed. He is based in England, Executive Director of the Institute for Policy Research and Development, and he has taught courses in contemporary history and international relations at the University of Sussex, where he got his Ph.D., and he has also lectured at uh, Brunel University's Politics and History Unit, He's written extensively, particularly about international affairs and terrorism in particular. His books include The London Bombings, The War on Truth, which was published in 2005 and was the opportunity I had to talk to Dr. Ahmed in the past. And uh, he also wrote Behind the War on Terror in 2003, The War on Freedom in 2002. He blogs on the web at nafiz, N-A-F-E-Z, nafiz.blogspot.com. Dr. Ahmed, welcome to the Boiling Frogs. Thank you for having me, Peter. And thank you for staying up late, uh, your time, to talk with us and accommodate our schedules. Not at all. I wanted to begin, uh, we'll go back a little bit in a moment, but I found on the web a blog post that you wrote just days after Barack Obama was sworn in as President of the United States. Your post is dated January 26, 2009. And you uh, headline this, Obama, Regime Rotation. And in it, you predict many of the things that frankly have come as uh, somewhat of a surprise to me about the continuity 
of the Obama administration on critical issues and uh, what I would call troubling issues related to the so-called war on terror, the expansion of presidential authority under Bush and Cheney, and uh, what you basically see as the ongoing posture of U.S. corporate interests and our desire to dominate world energy supplies. Absolutely, yeah. Now, this is a really crucial issue, and, and, and what I've found is that um, it's very easy for people to get caught up in, in the kind of the hype about Barack Obama, you know, the, the, you know, the hope and the change. And, you know, if, if, you, if you suggest that, you know, maybe Obama is not actually, you know, really genuinely hoping and changing, then kind of people react to you and they kind of thought, how can you say that? I mean, look at the guy. He's so nice. He's so friendly. You know, he dances on camera, you know, and, and, he, and he's so charismatic. And it's true, he's very charismatic. But the issue for me is, is the question of whether Obama as a person is good or evil, or is he sincere or insincere, is, is, is not the key question. I mean, you can answer that question after further research, but the more central question is, is regardless of what Obama's intentions might be, is how, how is policy actually made in the United States? Is it made by one single individual, by one man, the president, by himself? You know, and obviously we know it's not, and we've, we've seen with the Bush administration, um, you know, it wasn't just the Bush administration. It wasn't, it wasn't that the neocons came in with a bunch of crazy ideas, and, you know, it was, they just hijacked the system. They operated in the context of a, of a, of a structure. There, there, was, there, were many, there were various lobbies at play. Everyone's aware of the role of, of, the, of the very powerful role of the energy lobbies uh, and their influence on Dick Cheney. People are also aware of, of the role of, of the, the Zionist lobby, that's the Jewish and the Christian Zionist lobby, in terms of the formulation of Middle East policy. So all of these things continue to play a role. We have the role of the arms industries. All of these things are there, and they're still there. And if you look at the, uh, the planning documents that, are, that have come out of, of, of various departments of the United States government over the last few years, there is a very consistent trend line of... Um, looking at, uh, over the next 20 to 30 years, the way energy crises are going to play out, the way um, water shortages are going to play out, the way, the way um, environmental crises are going to play out in, in, in different parts of the world, and how these will affect um, the United States. And this is where you can see that, that, that the solutions that we're looking at in terms of going into certain regions in the Middle East and Central Asia, accessing strategic energy resources have very much remained the same. Um, so this issue of, you know, Obama and change for me is very much about, well, let's not just look at the man himself, well, let's look at the structure which he's come into. And from there you can start to see whether it's even conceivable for him to, to kind of change things dramatically without altering the system itself. Well, and here you are just days after, with some flourish, he introduced his administration by signing a ban on torture and uh, announcing that within a year he would close the grisly prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And you correctly read, first of all, that uh, this is, is posturing and it's rhetoric and it's a press release, a photo op, uh, and you point out that uh, the U.S. has been torturing uh, since the 1960s. 
that we have the manual that we've used at the School of the Americas and elsewhere to train other regimes in how to use torture and particularly link it to some of our uh, exported economic principles, the Chicago School of Economics and what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism. And so you read the continuity correctly at a time when many Americans were diverted to the mantra of change. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think um, this is one of the things that uh, there, there were a few commentators at the time who were pointing this out. And I do remember at the time, you know, the, the, we were fairly, fairly lonely voices. Most people were very, very excited. But I, I think that's the whole danger of, of this, is that, is that President Obama, in a way, has, has been able to neutralize the anti-war movement because he's come along with this whole doctrine of hope and change. And, and in fact progressives in the United States worked so damn hard to, to, act, to, to elect him. But I think it's very, very difficult. And I do understand the difficulty people have with, with you know, they've, they've worked on the ground, they've slogged it out and they've seen the result. And the result wouldn't have happened without the hard work that people on the grassroots put in. But when you've done all that work, it's very difficult to turn around and say, Oh my God! You know we've done all this work, but but there there hasn't been real change, and it's very easy to kind of accept at face value that well he said that he's going to shut it down, so he must shut it down. But I think as as I analysed at the time, I mean it, it's very very clear that what Obama actually said he would do was very very carefully worded. Yeah, and um, all of the things, for example, talking about you know stopping kind of in these kind of indefinite. Uh, kind of detention was 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 dealt with simply by changing the language that was used in a very kind of legalese kind of way. So rather than talking about indefinite detention, we would have detention which would which was which was supposed to be transitory, but without putting a time limit on this transitory detention. Effectively, it's still indefinite. But you've just ch you've just changed it to transitory to make it seem as if as if it, it is going to end. So this kind of thing is it's very, very obvious, and it, it is a very legalese approach. Um, but once you read between the lines, it, become, it becomes very clear that, that what this individual is doing is actually um, very, very deceptive. And, and, and it's deceptive in a way that you can't put down just to an accident. Well, and as you point out, <clears throat> and as you alluded to a moment ago, you wrote here back in January of '09. Closer scrutiny of Obama's first executive orders revealed that they were designed less to transform illegal U.S. military practices than to allow them to continue in secret without legal, legal obstruction by redefining their character while retaining their substance. Example, uh, the order to close Guantanamo and end torture while continuing the practice of rendition but saying we won't render people to the countries that torture and by maintaining a prison with Gitmo rules at the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And Nafiz, recently on this program, we interviewed uh, journalist Pepe Escobar, who says that he believes there are as many as 10,000 people being held at Bagram right now, while the official reports indicate that it's somewhere closer to 1,000. Yeah, I mean, it's truly shocking. I mean, I mean we've got hard evidence here. Um, that they've been um, holding people in, in, in Diego Garcia, several thousand people, um, which is obviously it's the island which they obviously use as a, as a, as a launching base, um, which is strictly speaking owned by Britain, um, but primarily used by the United States. 
Um, and apparently we've had reports here that they've got thousands of people detained, and there are some reports that people are actually being uh, liquidated in Diego Garcia. And it's very difficult to, to corroborate it, but there, there have, what we have is we have photographic evidence and a, a lot of testimony. So this, this is definitely going on. Um, and it's, it's, it's this, this mantra that we're not, we're not going to send people to countries which, um, you know, we're only going to send people to places where they don't torture. I mean, this, this, this was something that the Bush administration was saying. So, so even the justification is actually the same. One question I have, uh, it has to do with this whole element of surprise, because if you were to look at uh, President Obama's record before he became the candidate, well, that itself uh, spoke pretty loudly. I mean, what did we see in this man's record, you know, a record in the, in the past that said he was a person who was going to seek change and he was the person who was going to show us the light. What did we see there on that record? So that was the part that I was one of those lonely voices out there, too. But that was the part that was surprising to me, the fact that people just went with words rather than looking into this uh, candidate's past actions uh, as a senator and even before that. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to the power of, of his political campaign. I mean, um, one of the things that interested me was looking at the uh, the campaign finance contributions on the... Uh, I mean, you can look these up on, on, on opensecrets.org. Um, and if you compare McCain's um, campaign funding from, from, from corporations to Obama's campaign funding from corporations, Obama got far more than McCain. Um, and, it, and it does speak to you know a very very powerful media team um, that really crafted his messages, and people just went for it. People just you know they they, they swallowed the uh, the slogan, and I guess it's a really sad kind of um, indictment, really, of, of, of the state of our democracies. I mean, it's it's uh, we have a similar problem here. I think it's a problem which is afflicting all the Western democracies that there there is this. The votes are decided on the basis of who can do the most effective um, public relations campaign using slogans and, and quick imagery, and, and that's what captures public attention. People do not have the time to think about the details. It's a very sad state of affairs. Well, and let me offer just a couple of comments here from the point of view of people who supported Obama. Um, I'm not a Democrat. I'm a progressive independent, and... Uh, many of us were looking at this, first of all, as the lesser of evils, and clearly Obama did represent that as compared to McCain and Palin. Also, we were coming off two uh, purloined elections that I frankly believe were stolen by the Republicans, 2000 and 2004, and the sorry uh, run of the Democrats in 04 with John Kerry and with the, uh, the fraud that occurred in the state of Ohio. Uh, left many people so discouraged that they felt that, uh, well, you know, we have to put everything behind Obama. He's not Bush. He's not Hillary Clinton. He's not part of the Clinton dynasty. And even though he was undefined in many respects, and even though he talked about Afghanistan and the fundraising uh, indicators, Nuffies, that you described, were public information at the time, Many people either overlooked that or played it down because the stakes were so high for uh, the continuation of Republican rule.
That said, uh, it set us up for a sucker punch, and I think that many people are still reeling from the actions Obama has taken that conflict with the change message that he sold to the public through his campaign in 2008. Yeah, I mean, I think really it suggests that, I mean, that we really need to kind of recognize that political engagement is not just about voting, and it's not just about lobbying. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't lobby. I mean, I, I, I actually think that it's a very good thing that people did come out and vote in the overwhelming way that they did in the United States. Um, the fact, the problem is, is that, that that kind of mass grassroots power you know, it mobilized for the for the vote on the, you know, but it didn't hasn't mobilized thereafter. If that same kind of grassroots power could be mobilized again and again to to hold Obama to account for what he's not doing, then you would start to see that maybe we would be able to really pressurize the system. Um, but uh, but that's not happened. In in fact, instead we've had disillusionment and people are kind of not very sure. People are very confused, which is obviously part of the whole process. Um, and inevitably, it's also part of the strategy as well, the political strategy of the elite. But I think um, it, it does really make clear that, but you know, it's not enough. I mean, while, while, while one does have to do what one can in relation, to, you know, so I can see that you know when you're, you're making an assessment and you're saying, okay, we have to go for a lesser of two evils. And you know, I understand that, and I think you know we have, we've got the same kind of dilemmas here in, in the UK. I mean, what do you do? You vote? Do you not vote? Do you vote for the guy who just seems to? be less insane than, than the other guy. It's, it's a very difficult call to make. Um, but really, the, I mean, the, it just shows that the, the main arena of action has to be dealing with the current structure of, of the political economic system, both domestically in the U.S. as well as abroad around the world and, and, and what is combining the two. Until we're educated about that system and the way it works and why it works in the way it does, we will not be equipped to hold our politicians, our leaders, our representatives accountable in the way that we should be. We, we, you know, we end up becoming ineffective. And Nafiz, um, while it does not come as a surprise, it is disappointing that one of the signatures of this new Obama administration is a stark refusal to investigate any wrongdoing on the part of his predecessors, whether it's torture uh, the illegal wiretapping that was a, a clear violation of our Constitution's Fourth Amendment, or the rather broad issues of the lies that were served up to the American people to sell us the war in Iraq and uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. And when we look at your analysis, um, there is a consistency that Obama's refusal to look back, as he says, instead of looking forward, um, locks up a lot of, uh, of secrets, a lot of uh, uh, wrongdoing and violations that uh, he possibly may want to engage in in the future or feels that, again, his continuity of programs such as the drone attacks in Pakistan, which are a clear violation of international law, uh, would be subject to greater scrutiny. And we're just slightly jealous because in England right now, you're at least going through the motions of an investigation of the Blair government's uh, 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 complicity with the Bush administration in uh, uh, supporting the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, um, I mean it, we've had quite a few um, Iraq inquiries in the U.K., 
Um, and uh, these are, again, very much kind of damage control exercises. And uh, if you actually if you look at the people who are currently um, involved in, in, in the... I mean, all of, I won't go through the previous inquiries, just looking at the current inquiry. All of the, all of the people on the committee of investigation um, they're all people who have a track record of supporting the war, every single one of them, and really, really blatantly supporting the war, not just kind of, well, you know, we, you know, we had to go, but really kind of forthright supporting it publicly, vocally. So it's just not independent in any way. And unfortunately, even though the, the inquiry does have some power to, uh, to call for evidence, um, which the government would normally keep secret, they haven't been exercising it very much. They've been relying primarily on, on just calling people in, very much like they did with the 9-11 Commission, just kind of calling people in for interviews, not calling in everyone, calling in people they selected. Yeah. Um, as we know, for example, uh, Sibel wasn't, wasn't called for the 9-11 Commission. So they're, they're excluding kind of key individuals who really they should be, who would have had very damning evidence um, so the picture that you're getting, despite that, there's been a few nuggets of information looking at the way Blair made his decisions and, and the fact that they, they weren't quite legitimate. But there's a whole lot of stuff which is being left out. And I think, in a way, it looks like they're going to kind of make Blair the fall guy and leave the wider kind of decision-making process and the wider systemic deceptions involved kind of keep that under the carpet. And to some extent, though, uh, at, at least the legacy has prevented Blair from becoming a special peacemaker in the Middle East. And uh, I believe he was under consideration for president of the EU. Yeah, that's right. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> no way. And is, is that at all linked to these investigations or is it just the overall uh, stench? <laughs> I think I, I think um, Blair was was certainly for the EU position. Um, you know, throughout Europe, he was he's very very unpopular. Um, everyone in Europe kind of recognised him as as someone who was very vocal about the Iraq War and slightly disingenuous uh, at the very least. Um, so so the, on that on that note, I think I think Britain and the rest of Europe are very much on the same wavelength with with Blair. Uh, so there was no way he would, be, he would have been able to get in. Mm -hmm. I want to turn now to a, a document that is available at your blog, which you titled Our Terrorists. And I wonder if you'd give us a quick sketch, an overview of this, and then I know Sabelle has some specific questions for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, Our Terrorists is the title of the article, which I, I originally was uh, commissioned by the New Internationalist, which is um, you know well-known kind of left-wing kind of magazine. Um, and it kind of summarizes a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few years on, on international terrorism, and specifically al-Qaeda, and its relationship to U.S. military intelligence practices um, during the Cold War, but specifically after the Cold War. And my argument really is that this narrative that we, that we kind of generally, we kind of buy it hook, line, and sinker, that, you know, Osama bin Laden... We used him in Afghanistan during the Cold War to kick the Soviets out. That was as far as it went. After that, we kind of realized that, okay, this guy, he's, he's a bit crazy. His beard is too long. We don't like him. We're not going to be his friend anymore. And then he started blowing us up, 
and then we have to because of that now we're fighting this this terrible war and that's and and that's that's the story that's the way it is very simplistic kind of binary thing and what i've been kind of discovering more and more over the years is actually that this whole narrative is completely false in fact in the cold war our connections with bin laden were pretty geographically localized to that particular region um, i mean obviously they were also financing islamist extremist groups you know all over the place in the middle east and central asia around that time as well so, you know the muslim brotherhood in egypt for example a lot of these groups were being financed at the same time to, as a counterweight to leftist socialist nationalist communist you name it all all kinds of movements around the world um but this this the kind of concrete stuff was going on in afghanistan and this really proliferated after the end of the cold war you suddenly found that the united states military intelligence were in some way or other sponsoring pockets of these of these mujahideen groups in different areas of the world and they started off in Azerbaijan in the in the early 90s and they moved on um, from from Azerbaijan they you know they moved these guys into Dagestan into Chechnya at the same time by around the mid 90s you had these guys being op being operating in in Bosnia then in Kosovo uh, simultaneously, you had stuff going on in North Africa, um, in Algeria, for example. You also had stuff going on in the Philippines. I mean, this was going on all over the place. And it hasn't really rolled up. They're still using it. And the question is, you know, what, what were they doing with these guys? And it, it's different. It varies from region to region. But one of the most consistent explanations, I don't think it's the only one, but one of the most consistent ones is that they were using these guys to destabilize strategic regions in order to access um, very, very significant energy reserves. And that's why you found this really, the concentration of these policies was, was, in, was in the Middle East and especially Central Asia um, to access Caspian oil and gas. And I, f I found the whole thing so shocking um, when, I, when I was actually first discovering the stuff that I, it, to me, it was actually the, it was the main thing that actually made me very skeptical of the government's narrative about 9/11 and national security and all the rest of it. I mean, this is and this is what really this is what gave me the impetus to actually write the book that I did. I'm very familiar with the operations involving uh, Azerbaijan, at least those operations that went until 2001, and uh, the United States government, uh, in fact, used uh, Turkish paramilitary units for some of these operations. Uh, Turkey, they are known as a deep state, but uh, the leaders of these paramilitary groups, they were actually here in the U.S. They were in Chicago. That was uh, where they had their headquarters. And from there, one of the areas that I, I didn't see mentioned in your, in your uh, piece, uh, but I'm sure uh, you can tell us more about, is uh, uh, Xinjiang, a.k.a. Uh, East Turkestan, a.k.a. Uh, Uyghuristan, or as we call it in Turkey, Uyghuristan and also arming the Islamic minority there together with Al-Qaeda in terms of training and arming the separatists there. So I didn't, I didn't quite catch the, uh, I think because of the line, I didn't catch the question. Did you, was it, were you asking about Turkestan? Well, and, and uh, I'm asking about the area referred to as either East Turkestan by some because they have the government in Essentia that was set up here in the U.S. and by Yusuf Tirani. 
and the other name for the region is Xinjiang in China, and uh, also Uyghuristan. And that's one area I didn't see mentioned in your piece, and I was wondering if you had anything that you wanted to tell us about uh, involving that region. No, actually, I'm not very, I'm not familiar at all with um, operations going on in that region. But you, you'd definitely be much better um, placed to, to, to inform me and educate me about what was going on there. Um, I found very little public record information um, about what was going on there. So and you're absolutely right. There, there has been absolutely nothing. And uh, but again, these operations were very similar to the operations in Azerbaijan and elsewhere. Again, parallels with the operation in Chechnya. But when we are speaking with the people, uh, I'm sure you have come across the same thing, Nafiz, with the mainstream media reporters here. These are uh, the so-called experts in the region who, who cover that or those regions for the U.S. media. They don't want to hear about it. Yes, it's, it's, it's very true. There is an absolute block on looking at, at these kinds of operations. And how um, do you explain this blackout, this intentional blackout by the U.S. media? And when I say U.S. media, Nafis, I also uh, specifically mean U.S. alternative media. I'm not only referring to the mainstream media. Yes, I've noticed that as well. There is an extreme reluctance to, um, to investigate and acknowledge these issues. And I, I, it's, it's, I don't know, I've found it to be there's a culture on the left um, it's certainly very present here in Britain. I've, I've seen it as well in the United States. The left has this very ideological culture um, of, you know, well, look, we're, we're left-wing. We're, we're supposedly progressive. So there's certain things, because we're progressive, that we talk about because of our progressive goals. So, for example, you know, we want to talk about foreign policy in a certain way. But when it, when it becomes, when we start looking at these issues, these kind of deep political issues, we don't want to look at those issues because they're conspiratorial or, you know, they, they, you know, they're kind of confusing. And there's no point talking about it because it just leads people. It's, even if it's true, it's very confusing. And, it, and what we should do is focus on the fact that loads of people died in Iraq. Loads of people that died in Iraq. So that's what we should talk about. We shouldn't talk about anything else. And I, found it, I find it extremely bizarre and, to be honest with you, completely amoral. It's, it's, it's non-scientific, and, and, it's, and yeah, it's very ideological. It's very kind of, you know, why, why are you making a, a kind of a pseudo-scientific decision about what we are allowed to say, what we are not allowed to say, what we are allowed to investigate, what we are not allowed to investigate? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, what are we? We're not supposed to be thought police. We're supposed to be encouraging free and open inquiry. Well, that may be one explanation, and I agree with you completely. But the other part is, at least uh, this pertains to my uh, part of the, uh, this, this, this experience, at least based on my experience, and, and the information I, I had that was, again, was covered up by the state secrets privilege, etc. Most of those operations occurred between 1996 and 2001. So five years of that period, of that six period, six years period, ended up being during Clinton's uh, time. And this was during Clinton's administration. No, that's extraordinary. Which was continued by the Bush administration uh, after 2000. But five years of it fell within Clinton administration's 
you know, policy or hidden policies and operations that were funded even outside congressional funding. But also, that basically shows that these issues are party neutral. And this is exactly where we are with the uh, with, with this whole deal with the Obama administration, that people Absolutely. believe that there's going to be some difference in, in either the foreign uh, policy side of it or these practices, that there is actually a difference between the right and the left, when in fact we really have one major establishment in Turkey for that major establishment we use a name, we call it the deep state. But that seems to be more applicable here in the United States. Yeah, I agree with you, definitely. I mean, I think this, this uh, issue of the continuity of, of, of the policy is, is fundamentally crucial to understanding what is going on with the Obama administration. And yeah, I mean, it, one of the things I find extraordinary, actually, is how effective Clinton was at doing what he did. And, uh, and I mean, some people would argue he was more effective. I mean, if you look at his, his record of what he achieved in, in the Balkans, for example, it's very extraordinary. I mean, he completely, I mean, he, went, he managed to establish um, a permanent U.S. presence in the Balkans. He, he completely demolished um, several major states you know, balkanized them quite successfully, played them off against them each other, all under the kind of guise of this kind of this mantra of of, of uh, humanitarian intervention and, and kind of exporting, you know, liberal peace. And ironically, exactly this strategy of sponsoring al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, he also cultivated that. I mean, we've got all the evidence about the Pentagon flying in Mujahideen in the Bosnian conflict, using them as shock troops that came out from the Dutch inquiry into the Srebrenica genocide. And you've also got all of the stuff about the Kosovan Albanians and, and the KLA and how we intersect with them and their links to al-Qaeda and, and also drug trafficking networks and, and, and criminal networks. And we were using these guys, and they just destabilized the, the region, and, and it, it paved the way for eliminating the last remnants of, of, of the kind of the socialist groups and governments that we had there, opening up Eastern Europe to, opening up the Eastern European economy to privatization and all the rest of it. You then had them integrated into the whole NATO military security architecture. Right. And finally, you've also got the Trans-Balkan oil pipeline coming in. Mm -hmm. And also... No, as an added bonus, I mean, Eastern Europe is also one of the kind of key, as, as you know better than I do, one of the key transshipment routes for, for the, uh, the drug trafficking. So it's all kind of very nicely packaged and comes together very well. And Clinton was the one who, who did that. And what's funny is that no one really knows. I mean, that was, the, that was the, success, the success of that, was that we still don't understand what Clinton did in, in that part of the world, we know very well what Bush has done. I mean, that's the, that's the irony that Bush kind of, you know, he kind of wore it on his sleeve. He wore it, it was like a big badge. You know, hey, I'm a neocon. Look at me. Well, well with and, these guys, with, like with Obama, you know, you can't see it. Very difficult to see. And Nafiz, what you just touched on there is where I wanted to go next, which is that um, I was taken in by the neocon misdirect when the project for a new American century surfaced. When uh, the Wolfowitz team uh, was working for uh, Israeli political candidates and uh, also 
busy framing uh, a, a law that Clinton signed calling for the liberation of Iraq. Um, much of that was, was not really uh, in focus at the time. And as I saw the rise of the uh, neocons and the very public information that they published through, the, through PNAC, PNAC, um, I have to say that um, I was one of those people who tended to believe that this originated with Bush and his neoconservative cronies. But in fact, they were extending uh, the foundation that was laid for them, at least by Clinton, and if not uh, some of the work done by Poppy Bush in his uh, single term as president. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think there's there's something to be said that, the, uh, in fact, the emergence of neoconservative ideology was was not you know it wasn't it wasn't there was this kind of you know this group of people who just happened to try and hijack the structures of power i mean if you actually look at it very closely and you, and you look at the, the social network that these guys are operating in in terms of these you know the u.s power structures there was a whole movement that was developing throughout the policymaking establishment over the last two decades i would say and this was a response and, it, and it, as it as it became more and more powerful as the ideas became more attractive in terms of the geopolitical realities. And what people like Wolfowitz and others were writing with you know, the, all the defense planning guidance documents, for example, that they wrote under the Pentagon in the, in the early 90s through to the late 90s, I mean, these policy documents were circulated throughout the establishment. And what they were basically saying was that you know, there is going to be a decline in U.S. power. This is really the fear. And we have to maintain U.S. preeminence, and we, we have to do that through, you know, through these various mechanisms. And this essential strategy was something that was, which, which unified both you know, so-called right and left in, on the political spectrum. Um, and what's interesting is how, you know, with, with the neocons, you can see that what, what's really distinctive about them is, is you know, certain nuances. For example, they emphasize the utility of unilateral warfare, and in, in a very public way. They'll talk about preemptive war um, in a very public way. Whereas with, with, with the Democrats and the left, they're much more happy to say, you know what, it's okay, well, we, know we want to have multilateralism. Um, and what, and they, they, they front these things as part of the, of the, of the policy agenda. But well, as we know, I mean, Clinton was actually one of the first people who talked about um, unilateralism, and, and even 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 had even had we, we had the case of preemptive warfare in Sudan. So all of these things had predecessors, but what we find is that there were differences in the way they were publicly packaged. Right, which brings us to another question, which is uh, has been relevant and is relevant, but it's one of those issues that is being again censured and blacked out by many, both in the mainstream media and the alternative media. And that has to do with the key role played by Israel in this whole uh, picture. Yes. And you have a section in your article, uh, Our Terrorist, that uh, briefly touches upon the Israeli connection. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, what's interesting about the Israeli connection is um, how far back it goes and how ambiguous it is. I mean... One of the things that interested me is how, you know, I mean, this Israel's involvement in the financing of the Mujahideen all the way back during the, 
the Afghan conflict. Um, and it's quite extraordinary that, that, that you have this kind of intersection of, of, of right-wing um, kind of extremists from seemingly opposite sides of the fence actually able to, able to join forces. And that's actually a very consistent trend line, you know, which has continued all the way. So then you go forward to the 1970s and 1980s, and you find evidence from, you know, U.S. and even Israeli intelligence sources that Israel actually financed um, Hamas as a counterweight, again, a counterweight to the, to, to the left, a counterweight to the, the, the PLO, and which later became the Palestinian Authority, and, you know, kind of trying to delegitimize Arafat. Right. And even, in, even before, you know, while Ariel Sharon was still in power, there were, there were very kind of curious comments made by various cabinet officials and I think I quoted one of them in the in, in, in the piece. But there's actually quite a few. I mean, different officials have said different things. And even in the media, you find this ambiguous attitude towards towards Hamas and, Ara- and Arafat. People saying that, well, uh, the problem with Arafat is that he's, you know, he's a diplomat. You know, he's, he's, the, he's the kind of the democratic face. Um, even if, you know, the Palestinians did have grievances about him, quite legitimate ones. In terms of public and international opinion, he's, you know, he's, he's the peacemaker. So what, is, what do we do? And Hamas was seen as an alternative, you know, because they're, terror, because they're, they're terrorist extremists, you know, they're, 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 they're Islamist extremists. If they come to power, it can be viewed as um, legitimizing um, very, very hardline actions. You don't need to negotiate with terrorists. These are people who you can't talk to. They won't listen to you. So you can just fight them. And it's not clear how much this was, you know, a, like a complete kind of, you know, was this some kind of a grand plan to bring Hamas to power? I'm not sure if that, you know, if that was the case in, in more recent times. Um, I don't think there was a complete continuity. I mean, we know that Hamas was financed by Israel with, with U.S. knowledge up to around that latest around the 1990s. It's not quite clear what happened in the, inter- in, in, in the interim period. But if you look at the chronology of events, you know, just going all the way back to Sharon's administration and the way in which Hamas came to power, it's very, very clear that you have this consistent kind of provocative actions by Israel in the occupied territories, which predictably pr- provoked suicide bombings. And, you know, there were commentators, there were Israeli, the Israeli analysts were pointing this out, that this is a, you know, what we're doing in Israel is, is counterproductive. And we shouldn't be doing it, but it never—it just continued anyway. Um, so that there has been speculation within within Israel that actually this was a strategy to actually bring bring a hardline government to power, and that what we're seeing now is a continuation of that strategy. So we're seeing—you know—we saw the siege of Gaza, we saw the attempt to—you know—we're seeing the strangulation of the occupied territories. We're seeing again continued settlement expansion. Um, so. The argument is that actually this is a con- this is an ongoing strategy to essentially um, break apart the occupied territories into smaller and smaller territories to eventually uh, encourage the uh, you know the so-called transfer of the population to neighbouring Jordan. So in in a way it's it's a kind of a, the, the idea is a kind of a slow burn process. Well, I, I think if you look at some of the thinking that Ariel Sharon had at the time. There was there was indications that he was maybe thinking of maybe launch, launching an all-out offensive, um, but it, it seems it seems that the all-out offensive route has 
has maybe changed at least at least for a while towards a more kind of slow burn process where you're putting pressure on the occupied territories in such a way that that you're you're trying to make it less likely that people actually want to stay there. We're talking with Dr. Nafiz Ahmed here on the Boiling Frogs. I'm Peter B. Collins with Sibel Edmonds. And Nafiz, uh, my co-host here at some personal risk, has given clear information uh, to a media that uh, maintains a general blackout in this country about the efforts by the nation of Turkey to uh, acquire influence in the United States through various means, some of which are not legal. And it has involved bribery and uh, the turning of some of our top uh, diplomats and other officials. And I'd like to know what you might be able to add to this from your perch in England, because much of the information that is blacked out from the American people is widely available in the U.K. and elsewhere. So what could you add to uh, the efforts by Turkey, not just to burnish its image or enhance its military arsenal, but to clearly burrow into the U.S. government and try to develop a favored role that is quite parallel to the one that uh, uh, Israel has developed with our government? It's a very good question. Um, it's difficult for me to answer because I'm, I'm, it's not something that I've, I have any expertise on. You know, I, I, you know, I've, I've followed uh, politics in Turkey. I even did a human rights report on... Um, uh, it, uh, this is a long time ago, about 10 years ago, I did a human rights report for an organization called the Islamic Human Rights Commission. Um, and we, had, we had, had, a couple, had a couple of people go to Turkey and interview people who'd been tortured. And, you know, we investigated um, the, the, the conflict, in, conflict with the Kurds and the ethnic cleansing campaign going on in, in relation to that. So, I mean, I'm familiar with the human rights stuff, I mean, the, but the intelligence stuff, you know, again, I'm I'm relying on on Sybil's information really to get a get a grip on that. But I think on a more general general note, in terms of the dynamic of what's going on, where you have a foreign power that is clearly um, actively infiltrating the, the United States intelligence services um, and, and and all different other le- other levels of, of government, and doing it in a way, and so you have someone like Sybil who is now trying to expose this, and yet you have resistance from the government. It's very odd. I mean, you kind of think, well, how do you make sense of that? I mean, this is a violation of, of, of our security. How on earth, why, why is it that our government wants to silence, what, you know, one of our whistleblowers who's revealing this? It doesn't make any sense. But the way to understand it is to understand the, the, his, the historical context of this relationship. And this is the issue, because, because it, it all comes back to the structure of this concept of what is the deep state that we're looking at here? How does it function? It goes back to this deep, dark question about who is making policy. And if you go back to these issues of look, who is actually, what are the rich, rich state structures are actually responsible for implementing some of these very dubious policies we've seen going on with, with, Al, with sponsorship of al-Qaeda, you know, the, the dubious arms trades that we've got going on with, with Israel and Mujahideen, you know, what's going on in Turkey, and, you know, the drug trafficking networks, the, the, other, the intersection of the criminal underworld, how does this all work? When you bring it all together, what you find is that the whole global political economy is not, it's not based on just, you know, this kind of nice and tidy nation-state system where everyone's got closed borders and, there's, and you know, everyone abides by international law. It's completely different. Actually, what you find is that 
this structure that you call the deep state is actually, it's not just a local national structure, it's an international structure. And you find that the nation state structure serves just as a conduit of this international circuit of, of power. And what that international circuit of power is about, it's, it's a network of all kinds of different actors. You've got banks, corporations, you've got the arms companies, you've got private military contractors. You have all of these guys and, and intersecting with the intelligence services and, and the government. And what you find is that the intelligence service and the government, they actually act almost themselves as you know, a local contractor to this whole network. And their function is to provide services to that network, not to the public. And that's why you find that government, which has, has this function, is, is completely ineffective when it comes to dealing with real, with real security issues. Because it's not the security of the public that they're actually protecting. Hmm. It's the security of, these, of this whole huge conglomerate of vested interests. And that is a completely different par- paradigm to what we're taught, even you know, in, in, you know, your mainstream international relations or political science class uh, in college, is not going to teach you this. It's just not understood. Even though you do have a very few academics who are, who are, who are looking at this, you know, people like Peter Dell Scott and others who are kind of pioneering that kind of analysis, right. it's just not understood. No, it is labeled conspiracy theorists and uh, marginalize and just spit out. And, and they have been very successful in doing that. They have been. But um, you know, there is a, there's an emerging kind of literature, certainly in, in the academic world. Um, there, there, are, there are a number of, um, of, of interesting books that are coming out. And what, one of the books that I, I'm aware of is a very interesting one by... Uh, uh, it's called The Gov- Government of the Shadows. And uh, the guy who's edited... It's an anthology of... of, of of papers written by various academics, um, and the guy who's edited it, he's a law professor from Australia, and and it's extraordinary. I mean, they cover a whole a wide range of issues. They look at they look at um, drug trafficking. They also look at um, international terrorism. They look at historical issues such as um, Operation Gladio, you know, the uh, which is, which is I think. Um, um, so, though you probably you probably know a lot about that from the Turkish angle. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I only know a little bit of the, what's come out from the from you know kind of the, the academic studies, um, but the whole kind of I mean the whole the whole the whole issue of of Western intersection with 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 state sponsorship of of terrorism and deliberately sponsoring terrorist attacks in order to kind of mobilise populations against opposition against left against against dissidents and this is what was going on at that time so all of this stuff there is there is some really good work being done but um unfortunately uh it's very difficult to communicate this to to the to the mainstream Nafiz, next i'd like to ask you about the so-called liquid bombing plot that was uh, disclosed uh, first by the united states over the objections of the british investigators in the summer of 2006 And we remain on a liquid lockdown here in the United States whenever we want to travel by air. And it's, uh, to me, it's stupid, it's insidious, and it is based on an effort to generate fear that really is not related to what we know about this effort. And from sources over here, what I am aware of is that 25 people were initially rounded up, but most of those were not prosecuted. 
And while Dick Cheney, our vice president, uh, exposed this plot through a, a very interesting trick, he sent somebody to, uh, uh, I believe, to Turkey uh, to basically send, or no, to Pakistan, I'm sorry, to send a message back that uh, this plot was about to be exposed. And uh, what we know is that while he described it as an imminent effort that might happen a week or two after he exposed it, uh, in fact, most of them didn't even have passports. None of them had airline tickets for this uh, alleged concerted effort to develop liquid explosives, carry them on to transatlantic airliners, and blow them up uh, mid-air. And I wonder if you could take a couple of minutes to uh, demystify the mythology that was propelled into the U.S. media about that sequence of events. Yeah, I mean, the liquid, the liquid bomb plot has been very, very instrumental um, internationally. I mean, in, here in the U.K., again, it's fundamentally um, been, been, it's been used fundamentally to kind of crack down on... on um, the whole kind of the whole airport infrastructure and just uh, really kind of pushing this line of you know you you know there there is a there is a genuine extremist threat it's not going to go away it's getting worse you know there are people everywhere they're young people you don't know who they could be they could be your neighbors um, that kind of that kind of mentality um, and it's interesting because the dynamic is interesting because it, you can see that they've done it in the United States they've done it in Britain they've done it in Western Europe. So the liquid bomb plot and the whole associated kind of kind of uh, narratives surrounding it have been extremely crucial in 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 creating this dynamic, justifying you know the extension of of, of um, security powers, the extension of anti-terror legislation, and all the rest of it. So it's very important to recognise how ridiculously absurd the whole story is. And one of the things that that I focused on, I did a piece for Raw Story. Um, a couple of years, well, actually, I think it was the same year as the, as the uh, shortly, uh, about a month after the whole incident blew up. Um, well, not didn't quite blow up. Hmm. Uh, but um, the piece was basically an interview. The main thing was an interview with, with a British explosives expert. He, 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 um, he worked for the, for the British Army for, for, for some decades. Um, he worked specifically in Northern Ireland, where he used to defuse um, bombs. Um, and later on, he went on to do consultancy for the Ministry of Defence, a very, very senior lieutenant colonel. And um, I asked him, you know, what do you think? My, I said to him, my inclination is to, is to be sceptical um, because of exactly what you just described, Peter, that there was this, um, there was this issue, there was this clear discrepancy in, in, the, in, in, in you know, was, it, was this an imminent plot? No, clearly it wasn't an imminent plot. So how do we make sense of this? And this, this guy, his name is Nigel Wilde. And he just said that, look, if you actually look at the narrative that they put forth about how they did this, you know, the, uh, the TA, I think they originally said that they were going to use TATP. And what they would do, they would bring the ingredients in, in separate um, bottles on to, to avoid detection onto the plane. They'd go into the toilet, they'd mix it all up in the toilet and, and create the explosives mixture. And he said, actually, this process would probably take some, you know, up to 36 hours to actually mix the stuff together properly. And he said it's such a difficult process that you're more likely to, to, to blow yourself up and not kill anyone else, you, you know, create a minor explosion than anything else. And before that would happen, he goes, 
you would end up changing the uh, the whole kind of the the ratio in terms of the air the the air ratio within the cabin or something. And um, he said that because of the because of the change in the air pressure generated by the by the gases that would be released just within a matter of hours. Um, the alarms would end up going off in the toilet. So he goes, the whole thing would be detected before anything could happen. So he was, he just said, you know, this is not, well, whoever's put out this story, he said they clearly knew that this was not an operational possibility. Whatever the intention was, this could not have worked. And what's interesting is the way that, in the, in the way here, because we had, you know, these guys were supposed to, you know, they were supposed to be you know, British Muslims, so we had a whole we had a whole series of, of trials going on, and in fact, we still have an ongoing retrial because they haven't managed to get the conviction that they wanted with these guys. And what's happened is, in the first retrial, um, they changed the whole story because they realised that this this, uh, this this particular scenario was scientifically nonsensical. So then they said that, well, look, what they they changed the chemical. They said no. They were going to bring on HMDT, which is a, is a similar liquid explosive, slightly different chemical composition. Um, and they said they were going to carry this ready-made in a bottle and, and then detonate it on the airplane because they, they, they wanted to avoid the whole toilet conundrum, understandably mm-hmm. so. Um, again, this generated its own problems because HMT, HMDT, to, to detonate it, requires um, something like 30% liquid oxygen to do that which you know they they didn't happen to have you know a nice handy kind of can of mm-hmm. liquid um liquid oxygen ha- you know on board um that they had taken on so mm-hmm. they, they weren't gonna be able to do that so again it wouldn't have worked i mean i mean there were other there's other experts who pointed out that carrying hmdt around with you is also extremely dangerous i mean just the slight kind of too much friction a little bit of friction and it can just go off and again it will go off and it might kill you but it's not going to blow up a plane um so again generally scientifically it just wasn't going to work and the government scientists who, who actually tried to test it out they tried to demonstrate it for the court they had to do that you know they, they had these controlled conditions experiments and they had 30 attempts using all kinds of apparatus like including like a robotic arm to you know arrange everything in, in, in extreme precision, and and they still couldn't actually pull off an explosion. And I think after after about over thirty attempts, they managed to pull off one explosion, um, and that was the one that they filmed and videoed and showed to the jury to try and get their conviction. They st- and they still didn't manage to get the conviction that they mm-hmm. want. In the end, the jury concluded that the the plotters had a plan. But that they didn't have the capacity to carry out the plan, and now what the, what the British government is trying to push for is to try and get a conviction which which somehow shows that these guys were able to carry out the plan. And this really brings brings us back to the more kind of deeper issues. Well, you know, who were these guys? What what were they trying to do? And, and if they were so amateurish, what, what you know, what motivated them to do this? And it, and it brings us back to some of the more serious kind of deep political issues. That we've been talking about because if you look at some of the anecdotal circumstantial evidence that that's emerged in relation to this this issue we know that these guys were members of an organization here in the uk called omaha jeroon omaha jeroon also has 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 cells active in the united states um some of them were 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 
that came up in investigations, pre-9-11 investigations, which were linked to, to, to 9-11, actually. Um, and they also emerged in relation to the 7-7 plot. In fact, the seven, alleged 7-7 bombers here were, were all members of, of this same group, Amaharjaroon. So these guys are members of this network. What we now know from various bits and pieces that have come out, and one, one of the interesting things that came out was from the, the, that guy, John Loftus, who used to be with the Justice Department, mm-hmm. came on Fox News and, and, and basically confirmed that members of the Omaharjaroon has been um, used by MI6, uh, as well as the CIA, to, 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 to um, uh, kick off various covert operations in Kosovo in, in the mid-1990s. So we know that there is an intelligence connection with this very group that these guys were linked to. Um, we also know that when these guys were you know, kind of going through their radicalization process, they had gone to Pakistan. In Pakistan, we have reports that they had, um, they had been penetrated by the ISI, the Pakistani Service Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, we even have reports from the um, uh, Syed uh, Shazam, who is, who is the bureau chief of the Asia Times in Pakistan. He actually reported from Pakistani defense sources who said that, you know, we had actually had, we, we, what we were doing is running an entrapment operation with these kids. So, so that, again, that's something that hasn't been corroborated anywhere else. But it all kind of adds up with this idea that intelligence services have actually been deliberately penetrating some of these, some of these groups, subverting them, and mobilizing them and pushing them into various kinds of activities, which they've then been able to use very conveniently to publicly and, um, and quite, in a quite Machiavellian way um, generate these very, very kind of dangerous specters of, of, of imminent threats, which have then used to justify further extensions of, of military security policy. Well, once so again, when you analyze these things, you know, we really get a very, a very, very, a very worrying glimpse into what's going on. And once again, Nafiz, you have uh, delved into an area I was just about to bring up, which is the thread uh, that uh, links all of the domestic terrorism prosecutions in the United States since 9-11 is the paid government informant who was there provoking uh, criminal acts and uh, so-called terrorist or jihadi conspiracies among people who really didn't have a clue. We've got uh, the uh, Lackawanna 6. We've got the uh, Lodi Mosque case here in California, a father and son. We have the case of the uh, individuals in South Florida who were led by their FBI paid informant uh, into taking a loyalty oath to Osama bin Laden, planning to blow up the Sears Tower, and even uh, ridiculously planning to uh, develop some uniforms uh, for their their terrorist cell. And uh, these things don't pass a laugh test, yet uh, our government has led prosecutions based on uh, these infiltrations and provocateurs and uh, landed some convictions at least sufficient to convey to the public uh, that there are real terrorist threats and that our government's out there protecting us from them. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a very, very consistent pattern. It's happening here in Britain as well. Um, and it does raise really disturbing questions about what is going on. Um, you know, what, see, the problem is, is that when you're dealing with these issues, there are two kind of, there's two ways of responding. One is, well, you know, these guys have been convicted, so they're terrorists. 
so what's the problem? You know, we should we should do that. And then the other response is, it's a government informant, therefore it's, it's, a, it's a government conspiracy, and the government did it, and the government did everything, and that's the end of it. So you have these two kind of very binary ways of thinking. And it's very simplistic, and you can't really reduce it to either of those. It's very clear that some of these guys on the ground, who, as you said, you know, they don't really seem to have a clue, it's clear that on some level they've been drawn in to something real, and that it's, it's quite plausible that they may not have had the best of intentions, that they may well have had um, quite disturbing intentions. And so I think certainly with, with some of these youngsters who, who, who've been convicted in the liquid bomb plot, just as one example, but, you, know, you look at some of the, some of the, some of the uh, things that these guys said in court, you look at some of the transcripts of the, of the, of the surveillance of these guys, and obviously there are issues with, with those transcripts, but uh, and, and as well as the record, you know, they played recordings in court as well. And again, there are also issues with those legally. But just looking at them at face value, you get the impression that, yeah, you know, these kids, they really do seem that they were extreme, that they did want to do something. But they didn't have the operational capacity. So the question then falls on what exactly are our states doing with these, with, you know, with these, you know, these informants? And you find that this pattern just goes back and forth. I mean, it happened, you, look, you go the 1993 World Trade Center bombings, even, and even the 1998 U.S. Embassy bombings, in both cases, you had people involved in that who were basically uh, government aid. You had, you had in, the, in the 1993 bombings, you had, um, um, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, Abu Salim, I think his name was, who basically was um, working for the FBI, mm-hmm. had infiltrated the cell, um, eventually, his testimony was also used in the prosecution. Um, so again, you find this odd pattern. And, and this guy, obviously, he actually what what came out from the whole thing was that this guy had advanced warning of the attacks. He knew what was going to happen, um, but nothing really was nothing was actually done. And again, the same very similar pattern with with the 1998 attacks with with this guy Ali Muhammad, who right. we know was um, a former U.S. Army sergeant. Well, and and let me just mention that Peter Lance has written extensively about Ali Muhammad, including two recent posts that are on our website at BoilingFrogsPost.com. And uh, you're you're very correct uh, in in citing him as one of those inside-outside people uh, who likely was a provocateur, but it it appears that he also uh, essentially was a double agent, who uh, successfully penetrated and uh, deceived our own government and security forces? Yes, very much so. I, I think I'm very, very um, strong um, supporter of Peter Lance's work, and I, I think he's really taken this. You, you, I mean, he's really, he's really brought out some information that, that that you know is very, very difficult to find on Ali Muhammad. And I think Ali, Ali Muhammad's case is one of those cases which just illustrates the real ambiguities. That we're dealing with here, that you have, you have, you have and, and the way in which the separation between terrorist networks and state intelligence structures doesn't exist. It's almost porous, where you have this kind of intersection going on, this movement in and out. Um, and this is what this is what I think is very worrying. What what I'm concerned about is the way in which you have the executive branch who is exploiting. This, this this relationship, this very dubious kind of intersection between criminal, terrorist, and state, and using it to push forward this expansionist agenda and creating this fear-mongering. Meanwhile, 
not allowing the public to understand what these, what kind, what the all of this is really about. That all of this is really about um, sustaining um, a, a, a global structure which is meeting various vested interests. And there's an interesting uh, paper that I quoted in another um, article. Um, it was a report that I obtained from a colleague. His name is uh, Ulla Tanunda. He's a professor in Norway. And it's a confidential report that he wrote to the, for the Norwegian Foreign Ministry of, of, um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in which he described um, some of these issues. I mean, Ulla Tanunda is another, he's another academic who's been following um, the deep politics of all of this, and he's been looking at um, intersections with al-Qaeda. He's been looking at drug trafficking networks. And one of the things that he, he, he said in his report um, is he, talk, he used this phrase, calibration of violence. And he was talking about the conflict, he was specifically talking about the conflict in Afghanistan, but I think it applies broadly, even when we try to understand the role of these terror plots and these convictions and all of this kind of stuff going on. And he said, what's happening is you find in a lot of these cases that the, the U.S. government, the British government, some Western European governments... They, they clear, they're clearly financing both sides of the conflict at different times. And they're calibrating the temperature of the violence. And what he argued is that what they're doing is you're creating this dynamic which fits in very much with what we were talking about before with this, this, this general kind of bipartisan recognition that to maintain U.S. preeminence, you have to combat this, this, this accelerating trend towards a multipolar world. In the United States, we're all very, we're very worried about the rise of Europe, the rise of China, you know, the rise of Japan. We're worried about the financial crisis. How are we going to maintain this unipolar structure? How are we going to maintain our access, our unilateral access to energy resources? How are we going to do that? Well, if you calibrate the level of violence, what you can do, you can control the temperature at different times. Um, and that's what allows you to maintain with your allies this, this idea of dependency on U.S. security structures. So, you know, you kind of vindicate the existence of NATO. You vindicate the U.S. arms industry. You vindicate all of their dependence on, on, uh, on, on U.S. kind of peacemaking um, policies around the world. Um, so so, it's, it's one of, so I, think, I think that even this issue of the liquid bomb plot and these, and these terror plot and these convictions, in a way they play into that because they allow the public to buy into this general sense that, well, there is this very real threat going on. It's got nothing to do with our system. It's just a threat which is out there. And we need to go and deal with it gung-ho. We need to go into Afghanistan. We need to go in, you know, power project into all these areas. And it deflects attention from this underbelly of structures and interests, which is actually propelling all of this in the first place. Nafiz Ahmad, it's fascinating to talk with you, and we could go on at great length, but I'm aware of how late it is for you in London. And I'd like to close by asking you to uh, uh, tie this together, because what you have talked about in almost all of the issues that we have covered is the false narratives that have been developed. And it struck me uh, that on November 1st, when President Obama gave his speech before the cadets at West Point, announcing that he was uh, expanding our military presence in Afghanistan by an additional 30,000 troops, that he embraced the false narratives um, of the Bush administration, the 9-11 threat uh, linked to Afghanistan. Uh, uh, he, He talked about how the surge has been successful in Iraq, which I consider to be a complete myth. 
and uh, even talked about Iraq in broad terms as a success, uh, despite the carnage and the, uh, the uh, interreligious strife that continues there. And so I wonder if you could comment on the way that he has spun the uh, narratives that preceded him into uh, his kind of latest package uh, of rationales for uh, the foreign policy directives that he's issued. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I hope I can live up to your request. I mean, I think it's, um, it boils down to kind of a very simple issue for me, which is, you know, if, if Obama has articulated his own criteria of success, the question is, what is actually the U.S. kind of establishment's criteria of success? And let's, let's look beneath, you know, the sloganeering and, and the kind of, you know, the, 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 the PR speeches. Let, let's go and look at that, the actual planning and the track record. And it's very clear what, what, what Afghanistan is partially about. Certainly it's not the whole thing, but the trans-Afghan oil pipeline throughout the 1990s was one of the primary reasons that the United States government was financing the Taliban from around 1994 all the way to 2000 at least, and then you know, they were still having negotiations with them through, you know, three months before 9-11 to discuss how to get the pipeline through. And it was really the failure of those discussions, according to people present at these meetings, that precipitated the, the, the invasion of Afghanistan. So that whole backdrop puts into sharp relief the kind of issues that Obama is talking about in terms of terrorism, but you know, for me, the clincher is when you look at the you, you look at the real causes of what's going on in Afghanistan. We, we, you know, it's to kind of summarized by his whole approach to Pakistan, because in Pakistan we have a situation where Obama has basically given point blank, you know, up to five five billion dollars, you know, of to, to Pakistan in terms of military economic assistance primarily to fight the insurgency. Whereas his government, and even the preceding government, Bush's government, both of them received reliable intelligence information from, from NATO, from, from various other sources, confirming that um, the, the ISI has actually been financing the Taliban. And even the guy who's basically now, he's now head of, who's, who's been promoted to head of the army, it was General Kiani, his name is, under his um, jurisdiction, the ISI was financing specific Taliban camps and had connections with some of the key guys who were involved in the insurgency, such as such as Haqqani and his whole network. Now, if that if this if this is going on, you know, if you have this situation where the people you've been giving blanket funding to, where you know you've had we had the Kerry legislation, which was calling for scrutiny of of Pakistan's policies and calling for accountability and saying, well, look. Let's make this financing conditional. Let's make the, the, the you know all of the, the the loans and the aid make it conditional on Pakistan proving that they're not financing the insurgency. And that was all ditched out of the water. And it was like let's just go straight and finance the guys. Then you have to start asking questions. Well, what is the point in going there and and, and having this surge in financing all of these troops when you know you're actually you know one of the states that you're using to actually fight the insurgency is also financing the very same insurgency. And which brings me back to the issue of the whole calibration of violence. So ultimately, we need to look beyond these, these kind of platitudes and look more broadly at the geopolitical interests that are involved in, in, in Afghanistan, in areas like Iraq, 
and contextualize it with these deeper policies of financing the enemy, which I think really reveals and undermines the narrative that's going on. Al-Nafiz, you're honored and really excited to have you on our team at the Boiling Frogs Post, and we are looking forward to publishing your pieces. No, honestly, the uh, the, uh, the honor is mine. <laughs> it's, it's been a real pleasure. It's been very, very, uh, very, very uh, exciting, actually, just to be able to speak to you still after all these years. Dr. Nafiz Mossadegh Ahmed, thank you for joining us here on The Boiling Frogs. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Sybil.